So my topic um, in this series on immateriality in the age of science is Aristotelian arguments for immaterial powers, actual problems, and some potential solutions. And my talk is in four parts. Um, so why do certain Aristotelians, and in particular Thomists, contend that the human person's intellectual powers and rational soul are immaterial or disembodied? This is the problematic I'll be exploring this evening. My presentation has four parts, and in the first I address a major problem with appreciating how Aristotelians approach humans in the world. To this end, I distinguish the tradition of neo-Aristotelian philosophical anthropology from the rival and incompatible tradition of philosophy of mind. In the second part, I then go on to explain what is meant by neo-Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect, which is illuminated by elaborating how these arguments function within an overall Thomist philosophical anthropology. In the third part, I identify six obstacles facing Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect, including, and, and I will focus on one of them, that in particular pr presents even difficulties to the arguments for the immateriality of the intellect put forth by St. Thomas Aquinas. And in the fourth part, I very briefly diagnose what I think is one of the root problems with these kinds of arguments and suggest where Aristotelians might look to elaborate more cogent and perhaps even demonstrative arguments for the immateriality of the intellect. The next two lectures in this series by Adam Wood and Antonio Maramas Diaz will address in much more detail, I believe, some of these actual problems and some of these potential solutions for Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect. So I turn to my first part. Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect need to be distinguished from many other kinds of arguments for the immateriality of the intellect, especially those associated with the Cartesian heritage of modern philosophy, and in particular, the tradition of philosophy of mind from the last century. The Aristotelian tradition of philosophical anthropology is a rival and incompatible tradition of inquiry from the tradition of philosophy of mind. So one major actual problem we face is being clear about what distinguishes these two different paradigms or research programs. They start with two different rival and conflicting images of humans in the world. And these conflicting images feed the first principles or substantive heuristics that guide many of their systematic theoretical inquiries into the nature of humans and of the world. For the traditional philosophy of mind, they contend that our folk psychological image of humans introduces a contrast between mind and body or the mental and physical dichotomy. Bodies in the world have certain properties like being physical and observable, whereas minds or mental phenomena have certain properties like being unobservable to others, but privately accessible to the conscious subjects who have or are minds. From this starting point, shared by physicalists and by dualists alike, we can generate all of the sophisticated physicalist and dualist positions that have been elaborated and rigorously debated over the course of the last century. From this shared commitment to a mental physical dichotomy, philosophy of mind has given bold and nuanced disagreements about whether the mental exists and how it relates to the physical. From such physicalist positions as eliminativism, reductionism, and non-reductionism, including realization functionalism and anomalous monism, to such property and substance dualist views and versions of epiphenomenalism, emergentism, varieties of panpsychism, and both Cartesian and non-Cartesian forms of interactionist substance dualism. Despite all their enormous disagreements, these wildly different positions all belong to the tradition of philosophy of mind, which by its very starting point, systematically excludes 
such alternative traditions of philosophical anthropology as the Neo-Aristotelian tradition, but also other traditions like the phenomenological anthropology of Husserl, Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty, and the conceptual anthropology of Wittgenstein, Gilbert Ryle, and others. The tradition of philosophy of mind has led with different feet throughout its long history. Prior to the 20th century, it largely commenced with a mind-first presumption and sought to regain the physicality of the world via the mind. Its failures to regain the physical world via the mind led to the many philosophical experimentations in idealism and spiritualism, as Etienne Gilson characterizes them in his magisterial The Unity of Philosophical Experience. The past century, however, was dominated by philosophy of mind's unwavering commitment to physicalism. Its story tells of many impressive failures to regain from the paucity of physical stuff either an immaterial mind or a physicalized mind. The failures of the ambitious efforts of both physicalists and dualists also ironically spawned the only conclusion we can draw from this extended history of internecine debate, namely the conclusion defended by a limit of physicalists who contend correctly that if this is what the mental is, then it does not exist. But let us add here an agreement with the idealists and contrary to limited physicalists, that if this is what the physical world is, it does not exist either. Hence, from the Aristotelian point of view, only the most extreme outlier positions in philosophy of mind have managed to arrive at partially true conclusions concerning the entailments of philosophy of mind's first principles, which when taken together, disclose that philosophy of mind is a self-destructive tradition of inquiry concerning the nature of human persons in the world. But we can evade its intractable disagreements by diagnosing its root errors and rejecting its problematic starting points. This is also why all efforts by Neo-Aristotelians to engage philosophy of mind on its own grounds have failed and will fail. For the very terms that must be accepted to enter seriously into that debate require of Neo-Aristotelians to systematically distort their own basic principles and forfeit their commitments to their rival image of human persons in the world. This is not only the case for neo-Aristotelian uncritical engagements with philosophy of minds, uh, mind-body and physical-mental interaction problems, but also those other problematics whenever they're conceived by philosophers of mind in terms of the mental and the physical, such as the issues of free will, human action, personal identity, perception, consciousness, intentionality, epistemology, knowledge of other minds, and a variety of meta-ethical issues. Let me be clear though, this word of warning is not an excuse for Thomists or other Neo-Aristotelians to be ignorant of philosophy of mind's truly enviable, rigorous tradition of philosophical inquiry. Critically engaging with it, learning from it, and emulating its argumentative tenaciousness and incisiveness is indispensable if Thomism is going to claim as it should its superiority as a tradition of philosophical and theological inquiry concerning the truth about human persons in the world created by God. But what must be appreciated in order to under do this truthfully and in earnest is how to critically engage a rival tradition or paradigm of philosophical inquiry and how to self-critically vindicate, defend, and revise the epistemological crises within one's own tradition. And in this talk, I'm going to focus on one of the epistemological crises within the Thomist tradition. It is not my task here to adjudicate how to engage in such a uh, debate with a rival tradition but such discussions about how we can engage traditions like philosophy of mind critically without begging the question has been dis discussed and treated by Thomas thinkers like Alistair McIntyre, Bernard Lonergan, and many others. 
For the purpose of this talk, what is crucial for neo-Aristotelians to understand is why the principles, arguments, and conclusions they employ for arriving at the immateriality of the intellect are orthogonal to the incommensurable concepts, principles, and arguments and conclusions provided by various dualists in the philosophy of mind. So one of the first actual problems we need to face is distinguishing between dualist arguments for the immateriality of the mind from Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect. Two points of contrast are noteworthy and will be sufficient to make my point here. First, philosophers of mind generally regard the mind, generally regard the mind and mental phenomena like pains, imagery, conceptual thought as being of the same kind. If mental phenomenon can be shown to be immaterial, then all mental phenomena are non-physical. Alternatively, Aristotelians distinguish between sensory and intellectual operations and powers, where for Aristotelian sensory phenomena are hylomorphically embodied and intellectual phenomena, are eutomists, are disembodied and immaterial. This disagreement is rooted in their fundamentally opposed conceptions of the world. Philosophy of minds either atomistic or cosmic monistic physicalism versus neo-Aristotelian's hylomorphic view of the physical world. The most notable exceptions in philosophy of mind to this sharp contrast are instructive. For these philosophers of mind who do think there's a relevant division within the mental, regard rational mental phenomena as posing no great difficulties for physicalism. Unlike Thomas, they think that showing rationality as physical is an easy problem. They contend that sentient phenomena are the mental properties most resistant to physicalism's ontological imperialism. It is sentient experiences, according to philosophers of mind, of conscious pain or imagery that provide the best evidence for immaterial minds, not rationality. Once again, what explains this contrast are the conflicting ways Thomists and philosophers of mind conceive of the psychological agents in the world. Second, the arguments for non-physical minds or mental properties in philosophy of mind largely appeal to what can be imagined or what's conceivable, like the deceiving demons of the cogito, of what it's like to be a bat, of what Mary knows, of qualia zombies, of E.J. Lowe's replacement argument, and the many arguments about teleporters and brains and bats. These arguments often move from conceivability to possibility and from possibility via what neo-Aristotelians, given our own commitments about act and potency, must regard as dubious modal assumptions about why what is possible must be actual or real in some possible world. The Thomist worries and reasons for rejecting Anselmian or ontological arguments for God's existence provide them with similar grounds for rejecting these kinds of philosophy of mind conceivability arguments for the immateriality of the mind. In contrast to the arguments of dualists and philosophy of mind, neo-Aristotelian arguments universally start, as we will see later on, with some actual explanandum, something that needs to be explained, and argue for some actual explanands that must exist because it alone can aground and explain the putatively actual explanandum. This is how Thomist arguments work both for God's existence and for the immateriality of the rational soul. I would need to say much more on this front to justify my claims, but it's worth saying a good deal of it has already been said by Alistair McIntyre, Charles Taylor, David Oderberg, John Haldane, John O'Callaghan, Ed Fazer, Eula Klima, James Madden, William Jaworski's, and many others within the Aristotelian tradition. And so I move to part two. What then are these rival conflicting starting points of the neo-Aristotelian tradition of philosophical anthropology? 
In the last century, philosophy of mind started with the presumption of physicalism, which is largely characterized as whatever the best physics says the physical is. Having handed over the physical to the scientists, the first properly philosophical question for philosophy of mind becomes, can there be minds that exist and are compatible with physicalism? But the Aristotelian image of humans in the world is quite different. It starts with us, with living and breathing, developing independent rational animals in the world, whose love and care enable us to become more mature developing independent rational animals living among a variety of other medium-sized hylomorphic substances. And these we, through our later inquiries discover, are held in orbital place by vastly different size, minuscule and gigantic hylomorphic substances. Furthermore, it's only because humans really exist and have real powers to become theoretical physicists who can use our medium-sized rational embodied powers to perform experiments on also medium-sized multi-billion dollar pieces of technology, which enable human physicists to causally detect and act upon the smallest of physical particles. And it's only in virtue of this that we have any evidence for the existence of such particles. In short, for Aristotelians, it seems rather thoughtless to think we must start with these physical particles and then ask whether the existence of minds is compatible with the existence of these physical items discovered in our experiments. This very different Aristotelian starting point is enriched then by theoretical principles or various substantive heuristics of neo-Aristotelian philosophical anthropology and philosophy of nature and metaphysics. And these are fundamentally incompatible with the alternative substantive heuristics of philosophy of mind, like the mental-physical dichotomy. The most important of these for our purposes is hylomorphism. This is the most important of these substantive heuristics. This is the view that all physical things are composed of matter and form, united as one act, united as act is to potency. I don't have time here to elaborate on what hylomorphism is, but for those who don't know, there are some excellent Aquinas 101 videos that provide just such an introduction, as well as numerous other Thomistic Institute talks that explain hylomorphism in much greater detail. I will say it's important to notice here for our purposes that neo-Aristotelians distinguish at least three modes of hylomorphic composition. That of um, substances, that of their embodied powers, and that of the embodied operations or manifestations of these embodied powers. First, consider hylomorphic substances. These are the fundamental kinds, this is the fundamental kind of composition of substantial form and prime matter that constitutes all substances, like animals and plants and inanimate chemical and physical stuffs. Second, there are hylomorphic powers. The powers of hylomorphic substances are attributes that modify the hylomorphic substances which ground these hylomorphic attributes. But these powers are themselves zones of form matter composition, organization, and unity, such as the organic powers and systems of powers that constitute an animal's visual or estimative, motile, digestive, and cardiovascular systems. Third, there are hylomorphic operations or manifestations. For each of these hylomorphic powers grounded in the hylomorphic substance, there are the operations of these powers, operations that manifest distinctive patterns of activities within the organized materials that constitute these hylomorphic powers. Some of these hylomorphic powers are always operating, like the cardiovascular system in mammals like us, but other powers do not operate continuously, like our powers of vision and an active embodied movement. The abiding and relatively stable 
material organization of the hylomorphic power of vision is what grounds the dynamic patterns of psychological and subpsychological organization, which constitute our conscious hylomorphic operations of seeing. These three modes of hylomorphic composition are essential for understanding the neo-Aristotelian hylomorphic view of the physical world, including the varieties of evolved hylomorphic animals with many different psychological and subpsychological hylomorphic powers and operations. Call this latter position with respect to animals, hylomorphic animalism. We identify and differentiate the natures of hylomorphic animal substances by cataloging their different hylomorphic powers. And these hylomorphic powers are known by their hylomorphic operations and objects that specify these operations. That is the objects that are the conditions for these powers manifestation or actualization. This is simply another way of putting the Aristotelian taxonomical principle of Aristotle's Danima, book two, chapter four, that our theoretical approach to humans and other animals and other hylomorphic substances proceeds by what we can know jointly by a third personal, second personal and first personal perspectives First about objects and operations that then disclose panoplies of powers, and these help us to define and differentiate natures of different kinds of hylomorphic substances. The truth of these hylomorphic theses, especially hylomorphic animalism, is presumed by all neo-Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect. So the first thing we have to appreciate in approaching these arguments is this understanding of hylomorphic animalism. Humans are, of course, hylomorphic animals. That is our theoretical starting point. But what these neo-Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect aim to establish is that human persons, in virtue of their intellectual operations and powers, are substances that are metaphysically distinct among other hylomorphic animals. That human persons are hylomorphic animals with a rational soul, rational powers, and rational operations that transcend the hylomorphic physical order. And so, are not only wholly hylomorphic animals. Elsewhere, I've referred to this as hylomorphic animal personalism because humans are animal persons. Consider now how these arguments for immateriality play out in the major ontological conditions of a Thomist philosophical anthropology. We can distinguish five major argumentative phases within the ontology of a Thomas philosophical anthropology. Notice that the arguments for the immateriality intellect come at the third stage of argumentation. I wanna first mention each of these five stages and then I'll go on to examine each of them in turn. The first stage establishes that a human person is a single rational supposit. And this unified ontological agent is the actor that acts in virtue of coordinating its various rational and sensory operations and powers. The second stage shows that a surface level ontological differentiation of our many powers establishes that there's a real difference in kind between sensory and rational operations and powers. But at this stage, it is only shown that it is what Mortimer Adler called a superficial difference in kind. It is only then at the third stage by showing intellectual operations and powers are in fact immaterial, that Thomas can conclude that this real difference between sensation and reason is a difference in kind that is radical, rooted in the fundamental ontological difference between embodied and disembodied powers. The fourth stage returns to the nature of the rational supposit, 
showing that even though human persons act through powers grounded in embodied and disembodied subjects of inheritance, it's the more fundamental rational supposit that unites and operates, not its subjects of inheritance. The fifth stage then addresses several interaction problems that arise concerning how the embodied and disembodied powers united in one human person can interact. Let us focus a little bit on the first stage. The first phase is based on our common sense experience and phenomenological analysis of the unity of human activities. When I walk and talk, when I cook and listen to a podcast, when you and I agree to meet for coffee at 2 p.m. and then go about our business until we come to meet at 2 p.m., we perform distinct kinds of unified actions. And these are comprised of seeing and hearing, touching and perceiving, remembering, experiencing various emotions, intelligently experiencing, understanding, judging, reasoning, willing, speaking, and so forth. We rarely attend to this polyphony of distinct psychological aspects of our conscious and intentional human activities. But we live in and through a unified human experience that is comprised of this rich psychological manifold. However, our attention is often on the intentional objects that this manifold enables. The entire ontological inquiries of Thomas' philosophical anthropology in these five stages all presuppose a robust Thomas phenomenological investigation of such ordinary human experiencing and acting. Accordingly, the first phase builds immediately upon this investigation by establishing what grounds this phenomenological unity and what grounds it according to this stage is the ontological unity of the human person. The human person is a single rational supposit, an ontologically unified psychological agent that performs by a coordinated rational and sentient operations of various kinds, different activities. In short, as Aquinas claims against the Averroes, it is true that it is this human person that is the unified someone who performs coordinated, conscious, intelligent, and sentient operations. Moving on to the second phase. The second stage identifies ontological distinctions within what the first phase establishes as ontologically united. It has the task of systematically differentiating all of the different objects and psychological operations, and then rigorously establishing which different psychological powers are required for explaining this rich panoply of psychological phenomena. Aquinas, of course, distinguished 12 sentient powers and three intellectual powers. Contemporary Thomas have to ask the question, is this the correct analysis? Is this the correct individuation of the different powers of the human person? Perhaps there are more, perhaps there are less. less. It's a very difficult question. More significantly for our purposes is that on the basis of our experience differences among sensory and rational operations and their coordinated interactions, this second stage establishes a surface ontology of powers that systematically differentiates rational and sentient operations and powers. Even though one and the same person performs sensory and rational activities in concert, they are phenomenologically and ontologically distinct activities and powers. This stage then aims to vindicate the twofold Aristotelian contention. First, that sensation and reason are fundamentally distinct kinds of operations and powers. And second, that reason necessarily cooperates with the powers of sensation, a thesis that Aquinas often rehearses as the intellect's turn to the phantasms. In our intelligently embodied conscious life, 
sensation and reason are constantly interacting and co-manifesting together. In the terms of contemporary Aristotelian metaphysics, reason and will have reason and will have power partners among the sense powers. At the second stage in the argument, and apart from any Thomas textual and doxa, the Aristotelians must presume, from the point of view of what arguments have established so far, that even though these rational operations and powers are distinct in kind from sentient operations and powers, they still seem to be only hylomorphic operations and powers. And of course, like all hylomorphic attributes, they will be grounded in a human substance with a hylomorphic nature, that is, in the composite of soul and body. For at this point, there are no experiential or surface ontological grounds for concluding that the hylomorphic rational animal is not the subject of inheritance or ground for all of these rational operations and powers, just as it is the hylomorphic ground for all sensory powers and operations. In short, as Mortimer Adler clarified, establishing a real difference in kind is one thing. It is another matter to distinguish whether this is explained by an ontologically superficial or a radically different difference in kind. The default at this stage of the Neo-Aristotelian position is that even if humans are unique in having rational powers and operations, and so an animating form or rational soul named after them, nevertheless, humans, like all other animals, are wholly hylomorphic substances with wholly hylomorphic powers and operations. Moving on to the third stage. It is only at a third stage of ontological inquiry that Thomas philosophical anthropology uncovers grounds for going beyond hylomorphic animals, animalism and its metaphysical understanding of human persons. Thomas argued that a deeper ontological reflection on the nature of our rational operations and powers discloses that rational and intellectual operations cannot be wholly corporeal or embodied. And therefore, rational powers cannot be hylomorphic operations and powers. To establish this, two theses need to be demonstrated. And this is really the core of what has to be established in any Neo-Aristotelian argument for the immateriality of the intellect. First, that rational operations, in virtue of being rational, have unique ontological properties not possessed by any non-rational animals or any other wholly hylomorphic substances. Second, that these unique ontological properties cannot be realized by any hylomorphic powers because the ontological constitution of hylomorphic powers excludes the realization of the ontological properties that are unique to rational operations. If both these theses can be demonstrated, then Thomas' philosophical anthropology will have covered most of the ground required for demonstrating the immateriality of the rational soul. Before outlining what comes next in this third argumentative stage, we need to pause to clarify what this new Aristotelian argument approach also establishes concerning the very intelligibility, meaning, or ratio of immateriality. Here we enter into territory quite similar to Aquinas's philosophical theology, where the analogical meanings about God are elaborated by the triplex via of causality and negation and preeminence based on what's more known to us with respect to creation. Similarly, here we start with what's more known to us, which is hylomorphic animalism. The arguments for the immateriality of the intellect must negate the very properties of hylomorphic powers and hylomorphic operations that exclude 
the realization of the properties of intellectual operations and powers. Among these will, of course, be hylomorphic composition, and so also corporeality and embodiment, which presuppose hylomorphism. The arguments also necessitate retaining some notion of real, conscious, rational psychological operations and powers, and so too, some notion of formal actuality must be retained in our conceptualization of these rational powers, but it cannot be the formal actuality of any matter. Here, to clarify matters, we might introduce a terminological stipulation to avoid the needless confusion of saying that all forms in the hylomorphic oh, worldview no. are immaterial. This is unnecessarily misleading. While it's true that all forms are not matter or not material, insofar as form is the principle of composition that is other than the material principle it unites with in order to constitute a hylomorphic substance, I think it's much clearer and better to say all such forms in the hylomorphic worldview are of their nature non-material. And so then we can reserve this term immaterial for any form that's only realized ontologically separate from matter, that is, one that cannot be realized hylomorphically as a form composed with matter. In short, immaterial here then means a rational or intellectual form of psychological formal actuality that is not embodied, corporeal, and cannot be realized in a hylomorphic attribute. This account of immateriality is defined analogically via buttressed affirmations and negations, but not by contrasting it with a baseline concept of some austere physical stuff. That is, we are not starting with physical stuff to contrast the conception of the immaterial as the way philosophers of mind might, but rather we're starting from the psychologically and metaphysically rich baseline of concepts concerning hylomorphic animalism. Now, if rational operations really exist as immaterial formal actualities, but cannot be realized as hylomorphic attributes, then how are then how are they realized ontologically in the supposit or human person from phase one who performs such intelligent operations? This then brings us to a final conclusion of this third phase of the extended Aristotelian argument for the immateriality of the intellect. If these rational operations are immaterial because they cannot be realized in any hylomorphic attribute, then these operations must be performed or exercised by powers that also cannot be hylomorphically composed. So intellectual powers, like their intellectual operations, must be immaterial powers. Furthermore, since powers, like attributes, are grounded in a nature which is sufficient to ground them, no substance with a wholly hylomorphic nature, that is, a substantial form, prime matter constituted nature, can ground and realize immaterial rational operations and powers. We must conclude, therefore, that these immaterial intellectual operations and powers of the human person are grounded in an immaterial form. In other words, the subject of inherence of these rational operations and powers cannot be the sole body composite nature of the hylomorphic animal. Rather, the subject of inherence for these rational operations and powers can only be an immaterial form actualized by an essay of its own. And Aquinas, of course, claims that this immaterial form can be called a hoc aliquid, of this something, in the incomplete or secundum quid sense of the term meaning it is a per se subsistent, but that it does not realize a complete nature or essence. 
Why can't this immaterial form be a nature on its own? What justifications can be given for holding this immaterial form is the same substantial form or rational soul of the nature of the hylomorphic animal? And this brings us to a fourth phase in the overall argument. Thomas contend that this immaterial form must be the very same rational soul or substantial form of the hylomorphic animal actualized by its essay. I can't go into all the details of this fourth phase complex arguments for this identification, but I will outline a few of the justifications provided by Thomists. First, phases one and two already established that irrational and sensory operations and powers are the, are the unified and coordinated in these acts of a single human person. We know from experience they are coordinated and confluent in our conscious activities. And we can show ontologically, as we do in phases one and two, that they are the interacting psychological operations of one and the same psychological subject, one and the same psychological supposit. None of the arguments from phase three overturn these conclusions from phases one and two. One and the same individual rational animal supposit ontologically unites and coordinates the operations of their rational and sensory powers even if they have distinct embodied and disembodied subjects of inherence, for it is the supposit that acts, not the subjects of inherence. Next, into the question, why can't this immaterial form be a nature on its own? Neo-Aristotelians hold a supposit can only have a single nature, and a supposit's nature is disclosed and known by its coordinating powers via their coordinated operations. Being human persons ourselves, we enjoy a unique perspective of consciously experiencing our operations and our powers together. So we know of human operations both as observers and as performers. What we know is that we perform embodied activities that strikingly resemble those common to other animals that share a similar hylomorphic animal nature to our own. But we also perform these animal activities in distinctively rationally transformative ways. Since each human is a single supposit and no supposit can have two natures, Humans must have a unitary nature that exemplifies in an integrated synthesis both our rationality and our animality. Because our human nature consists neither in rationality alone, but in both fused together. Neither in rationality alone nor in animality alone, but in both fused together. This argument, based on Thomas' phenomenology and ontology, is reinforced by the arguments from how we know our nature. This brings us to the second question. Why must this immaterial form be the same as the rational soul of the nature of the hylomorphic animal? Recall that phases one and two elaborate on the theses of hylomorphic animalism to show that the hylomorphic animals that are human have a rational soul that is the animating substantial form of matter. The question raised by the conclusions of phase three is whether the immaterial subsisting form grounding immaterial rational powers is this very rational soul, a substantial form of the body. The Thomas case for the identity of this immaterial form with the rational soul rests on the firm ground of the Neo-Aristotelian doctrine of the unicity of substantial forms which excludes any two subjects of inherence from being two distinct substantial forms of the supposit. 
Just as one rational animal supposit cannot have two natures, it also cannot have a nature that is formally constituted by two distinct substantial forms. Consequently, the immaterial form grounding the rational immaterial powers of the human supposit must be the same as the substantial form that is the rational soul of the human supposit. This rational soul both grounds powers, rational powers on its own, and it is the formal animating principle, the hylomorphic composite, which grounds all the hylomorphic powers of human persons. These arguments should remind us of Aquinas's polemic against the Averroes, and a deeper exploration of those arguments would provide more resources than I have roughly sketched here. This now finally brings us to the fifth ontological stage of argumentation and confrontation with specifically Thomist interaction problems. Some Thomists have proudly contended that we don't have a mind-body problem. And while it's true we don't have philosophy of mind's mind-body problem, Thomists do have an interaction problem, which isn't shared by those neo-Aristotelians who are pure hylomorphic animalists, even about human beings. Of course, the terms of this Thomist interaction problem are incommensurable to those of the interaction problems found in philosophy of mind. This is made obvious by the fact that in philosophy of mind, it's the problem of how a mind or mental properties can interact with non-mental physical properties. For instance, dualists like emergentists have to show how two unrelated kinds of properties, wholly extrinsic to each other, can causally interact with each other, like how mental properties external to the brain can physically interact with the physical properties of the brain and vice versa. But in Thomism, it is a problem of how there can be interacting operations among psychological powers of one and the same human person when these powers are differently grounded within the nature of one and same human person. How can a person's hylomorphically embodied psychological powers and operations interact with its disembodied psychological powers and operations? After having spent considerable argument of resources to remove the intellect from being among the embodied powers of human persons, Thomas then need at this fifth stage to work out how it is that these disembodied powers are nearly continuously interacting with the embodied psychological powers of our hylomorphic nature. How can disembodied powers and embodied powers be reciprocal power partners? Answering these questions philosophically, rather than merely exegetically showing what Aquinas thought, will require contemporary Thomas to extend more critically, to attend more critically to how we can conceptualize and argue for the operations of abstraction, the existence and the nature of the agent intellect, an intelligible species, the intellect's conversion to the phantasms, as well as how practical reasoning cooperating with the will can formally constitute embodied human actions and bring about the obedience of the passions to reason. I cannot get into these issues here, but some of them have been addressed in great detail by Bernard Lonergan, David Brain, Stephen Brock, and many others. I turn now to part three. Actual problems, six obstacles for neo-Aristotelian arguments. I hope I have said enough so far to distinguish neo-Aristotelian philosophical anthropology from philosophy of mind and to make clear the stages that comprise the ontological investigations of neo-Aristotelian anthropology, including where and how Thomist arguments for the immateriality of the intellect function within these, within these ontological investigations. And I take it that the next two lectures in the series will go into much more detail about these kinds of arguments. In this third part, I want to now identify six obstacles facing neo-Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect. 
The first obstacle facing near Aristotelian arguments is what I call establishing a phenomenological distinction. This requires near Aristotelians to establish a robust phenomenological contrast between purportedly intellectual operations and sensory operations, and then justify this distinction ontologically. And this would be what's carried out by Thomas phenomenology, and then moving into the first and the second stages of the ontological part that I mentioned in the last section. The second obstacle, which is related to the first, concerns the problem of proving too much. Many Neo-Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality intellect stumble on this obstacle because they rely on an account of sensory perception common to human and other animals that is too simplistic. They often forget about the internal senses. By intentionally unintentionally downplaying the psychological prowess and powers of non-human animals, such arguments for the immateriality of the intellect only appear successful because they fail to ask the question, is the basic phenomenological contrast between sentient and rational powers unjustifiably excluding some psychological powers and operations from non-human animals. The security and the vindication of the Aristotelian arguments come from giving animals their due and ascribing to them the most serious and most robust kinds of competencies they, they genuinely have, and then still being able to draw a very sharp line that contrasts rational operations from these non-rational operations. The third obstacle, which also overlaps and relates us to the third stage from the last section, presupposes Mortimer Adler's distinction between superficial and radical differences in kind. It's not enough to establish a difference in kind between rational operations and sentient operations. Aristotelians need to establish there's a radical ontological difference in kind, not merely a superficial ontological difference in kind between them. And this is something that Adler investigates in greater detail in his monograph, The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. As we have seen, this is the aim of stage three of the ontological investigations of Thomist philosophical anthropology. Recall that what Neo-Aristotelians need to demonstrate is that there's an ontological property proprietary to rational operations that cannot be exhibited, realized, or grounded by the embodied hylomorphic powers of wholly hylomorphic animals. If this cannot be demonstrated, then Aristotelians must, at the very least, be able to show, probabilistically, both why it's highly implausible for any hylomorphic animals to exhibit, realize, or ground rational properties, and further, why it's far more plausible to hold only a disembodied power can perform rational operations. So if we can't get a demonstrative argument, we could at least give a plausible arguments in favor of it. Oh, sorry, I got cut off. The fourth obstacle is the intentional object fallacy. This obstacle identifies the all too common category mistake of inferring the ontological constitution of something on the basis of the way an object of thought is intentionalized, cognized, represented, or considered. This is the most serious actual problem facing the three most important classical Thomist arguments for the immateriality intellect. So I'll return to it. Few would fall victim to the following illustrative howler of this fallacy. I am cognizing a moving object, so my cognitive operation and power must be moving. But more subtle forms of the mistake are quite abundant. We can define the intentional object fallacy as the category mistake of failing to recognize that the way that an object is intentionalized or conceptualized does not by that very fact straightforwardly disclose the ontology of the intentionalizing operation power or psychological subject. 
The intentional object fallacy is my modified version of Robert Pasnow's content fallacy. And my minor revisions to it avoid the exegetically fair, but I think ultimately trivial objections that many Thomists have raised against Pasnow, noting some of the anachronistic or at least foreign features of representational content that Pasnow's interrogation imputes to Aquinas's anthropology. These Thomist objections to Pasnow's content fallacy, however, I think are ultimately immaterial because given suitable revisions, the exact same problem remains. The fifth obstacle is the intentional fallacy, where intentional with the S. What the intentional fallacy adds to the intentional object fallacy is that Aristotelians need to be cautious, not only about errors made on the basis of the fact that an object is intentionally about, for example, the nature of hoarseness predicated universally, but also errors that can arise from the way some conceptualization, predication, or description characterizes the combination of horse, common nature of hoarseness, especially whenever it introduces an intentional context with an S. This is a more common fault for arguments within the philosophy of mind and those which move from conceivability to possibility, but Aristotelian arguments are not immune from this mistake. And finally, there's the sixth obstacle, the epistemology to ontology fallacy. This is the error of drawing an ontological conclusion merely on the basis of an epistemological conclusion. The epistemology to ontology fallacy can, can be characterized as the error that results from failing to recognize that proving it's impossible to know whether X, like some machine, does or does not exhibit or realize some psychological operation, like adding, this does not thereby straightforwardly disclose or entail the ontological thesis that X, some machine, cannot exhibit or realize this psychological operation of adding. Each of these obstacles necessarily needs to be elaborated in much greater detail, but in the interest of time, I shall focus on the most troubling obstacles I believe are actual problems for Thomist arguments for the immateriality elect. And after briefly summarizing the major objections with Aquinas's, I turn to the fourth and final part to a brief diagnosis of the root difficulty with these arguments and suggest where we might look instead for a more promising the Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect. Aquinas' efforts to demonstrate intellectual operations, powers in, of the human soul are incorporeal, immaterial, per se subsistent, and incorruptible, focusedly on mostly three different arguments. The first is the omni argument. It contends that humans have the intellectual potential to know all things and that only an immaterial entity could receive the forms of all things, because in matter recipients are restricted with respect to the forms they can receive. Hence, the intellect must be immaterial, since only immaterial recipients can receive the natures or forms of all things. The second argument is the universalia argument. It aims to establish the immateriality of intellectual operations, powers, and rational soul on the basis of our ability to cognize universals or make universal predications. Third is the reflexio argument. It contends no materially embodied power can turn entirely upon or completely reflect upon itself. But the intellect can completely reflect upon itself. Therefore, it can be, not be a materially embodied or corporeal entity, but must be immaterial and disembodied. These arguments, I imagine, will be examined in more detail by Adam Wood in his talk in this series. I just want to focus on one major problem facing these arguments. I agree with Cajetan and more recent critics like Wood that Aquinas' arguments here are not demonstrative, and I think all three fail to overcome the intentional object fallacy for reasons similar to those presented by Adam Wood in his recent monograph, 
Thomas Aquinas on the immateriality of the human intellect and human intellect. Recall that this is the fallacy of inferring the ontological constitution of something on the basis of the way that it's intentionalized. It's noteworthy that Aquinas recognizes this error when he points out the way objects are intentionalized or conceived by the intellect need not be the way that things are in fact in reality. But this applies just as well to the ontology of the intellect itself. For the ways objects are intentionalized by the intellect need not be the way the intellect itself is ontologically. As many critical commentators have shown, the central contentious premise in Aquinas's universalia arguments violates the intentional object fallacy, for it claims that because we intellectually intentionalize universal objects, which are abstracted from considering their material individuation, our intellectual operations and power must be intermaterial in their, intellect in their ontological constitution. The intentional object fallacy draws attention to a subtle metaphysical sleight of hand that often occurs in these neo-Aristotelian attempts to establish a radical ontological difference in kind. That is, to establish that the intellectual operations and powers have certain proprietary ontological properties that cannot be exhibited by wholly hylomorphic animals and their powers. Because what intentional objects of intellectual operations are about are not materially individuated objects. To avoid the error of this intentional object fallacy, Aristotelian arguments like Aquinas's need to demonstrate the more difficult thesis, namely that only a psychological power with a radically different ontological constitution could be a power that could intentionalize such intelligible objects. Because holy hylomorphic powers cannot realize powers for intentionalizing such intelligible objects. The exact same problems confront the omnia and the reflexio arguments. Both start either from the intellect's potential to intentionalize everything, the omnia argument, or the intellect's actual intentionalizing reflection on itself, the reflexio argument. They both unjustifiably move from here to an ontological thesis that the intellect could only ontologically receive every form or ontologically wholly reflect upon itself if it were immaterial. But it hasn't yet been demonstrated in these arguments that the intellect does have the ontological potential to ontologically receive every form or to ontologically wholly reflect on itself. And these are contentions from the Aristotelian point of view of hylomorphic animalism that are very difficult to demonstrate without begging the question. So I turn finally to a very brief fourth section. Potential solutions for neo-Aristotelian arguments. Many potential solutions to actual problems require diagnosing the root difficulty. I think there's another deeper problem here, an epistemological crisis within the tradition of Thomas philosophical anthropology, but it would take another talk to present the arguments for this bold claim adequately. The root problem is that neo-Aristotelian tradition, I believe, took a wrong turn when I identified the contrast between universality and singularity as the basic distinction required to differentiate intelligible objects and operations, which concern universality, and sensory objects and operations, which concern singularity. While it is certainly true that non-rational animals cannot cognize universals, do not make universal predications, and do not make predications of any kind, it's manifestly false to hold the thesis that actual intelligibility excludes per se intellectual rational cognition of hylomorphic individuals. Nearly every, moment our, nearly every moment of our waking life as mature rational animals is replete 
with our making or listening to true and false judgments about per se and actually intelligible hylomorphic individuals. I cannot tell the story of my life or of anyone I know without judgments concerning hylomorphic individuals, and no one can practically reason without such judgments concerning the individual ends and actions of practical reason. This thesis that the intellect cannot know singulars per se and directly should be abandoned, both because it's false and it generates unnecessary problems concerning the rational cognition about individuals and because it sets up the wrong starting place for the phenomenological and ontological contrast between sensation and reason and the arguments for the immateriality of the intellect. What Neo-Aristotelians should focus on instead are the properly rational criteria for distinguishing reason from sensation. And these rational criteria include those very obvious features that are proprietary to intelligence and rationality, like categoriality, logical functions, truth-apt assertions, epistemic and ethical norms, linguistic competencies, and whatever in addition might also be legitimately constituting the logical space of reasons or actual intelligibility. Exponents of Thomist anthropology need not abandon Aquinas's neo-Aristotelian distinction between disembodied rational powers and embodied sentient powers, since it can be defended on these much more probative grounds. Contrary to Aquinas, the contrast between sentient and rational cognitive powers does not turn on some distinction between cognition of singulars versus cognition of universals. It rests instead on the distinction between cognition that is inherently rational from that which is not or is only by participation. Rational cognition is intrinsically permeated by actual intelligibility, definitional intentionality, and intentional contexts. It is semantic or truth apt, and it is structured by irreducible and definite categorical forms like modus ponens, modus tollens, normative means, means, sorry, normative means to ends reasoning, and narrative structures. This revision places truth apt cognition of material individuals squarely within the place of reasons, and that is of actual intelligibility. Neo-Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect, then, should start with these rational features of intelligent operations and aim to disclose whether there are any ontological properties that they have, which are proprietary to rationality and which cannot be realized by wholly hylomorphic powers. Unsurprisingly, this is precisely what the Neo-Aristotelian arguments of James Ross do. It seems to me that the James Ross style arguments as interpreted and elaborated by Antonio Ramos Diaz provide the most cogent and potentially demonstrative Neo-Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect. They concern not the intentional objects or content of rational thinking, as they sometimes been misunderstood, but the categorical or formally definite features and functions of rational operations, like defining, truth evaluative assertions, modus ponens, addition, multiplication, and so forth. These features of rationality have no difficulties overcoming the first three obstacles mentioned above. They get to the heart of one striking contrast with our sensory operations. Furthermore, there's no evidence from mythology that other animals exhibit such features in their psychological activities. These arguments also home in on ontological features that are proprietary rationality and attempt to show why these are excluded by and cannot be realized by hylomorphic powers. If successful, they demonstrate there's a real ontological difference in kind between sensation and reason. Finally, since they neither focus on how we intentionalize these definite categorical functions, nor on how they are known, as in the intentional context, 
they don't fall victim to the intentional object or intentional fallacies. It is only the epistemology to ontology fallacy then that seems to be an obstacle and the most pressing actual problem for these Ross style arguments. However, I'm quite optimistic and hopeful that versions of the argument can be developed, which provide an actual solution to the problem of Aristotelian arguments for the immateriality of the intellect. Thank you.